Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. It is an exciting evening for us. It's chilly out there. I hope you're keeping warm. We've got Dan Salmon in studio. Good evening. And uh, Paul Callahan calling in from an undisclosed uh, location. <laughs> like my secret bunker and say the whole thing. <laughs> Your lair. Yeah, somewhere in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> and I'm Vanessa Taholka, um, also staying anonymous out here in the north. Um, hope, yeah, hope you're keeping keeping warm this evening. Tonight, we hear from the author of Design for Safety. It's a new book about how we can focus on making technology safer by prioritising the most vulnerable users. It's a really interesting approach. We are very keen to get into that conversation. Plus, we look at how TikTok has taken a massive step in collecting biometric, that is largely unchangeable, unique and identifying personal data about its users. So we'll be chatting to um, a law professor from Melbourne Uni about some of the implications there. Uh, but before we get there, what's happening in news this week? Well, we've got a bit of breaking news. Um, while everyone has been focused on uh, very uh, important and grave issues with regards to public health, the federal parliament, um, both sides, Labor and Liberal, have joined forces to pass a new government bill to create uh, new police powers to spy on criminal suspects online, disrupt their data and take over their accounts. Um, now, I, I don't necessarily want to draw a correlation between everyone being focused on COVID and this uh, very, very far-reaching and massively uh, intrusive uh, privacy bill uh, passing uh, with little to no fanfare, but um, I just did. So the, <laughs> the, 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 the bill creates uh, three new types of warrants to enable the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission to modify and delete data, take over accounts and spy on Australians in networks committed from, or suspected of committing crimes. Um, now, this has been on the cards for a while. There was a parliamentary joint committee uh, earlier this month um, chaired by uh, Liberal Senator James Patterson, uh, which made a series of recommendations to improve oversight and safeguards. But uh, I can't see exactly which oversight and safeguards have been taken on board there. There were some amendments yeah. by the looks of it. Um, so, so one of the Greens has noted that the bill rejects a core recommendation of the Richardson Review, which is an earlier review, um, of the legal framework for the intelligence community, which had found that law enforcement agencies should not be given specific cyber disruption powers. And um, there's also commentary from a whole lot of people who have given um, their professional feedback on this bill while it's been in uh, progress through Parliament uh, people like the Human Rights Legal Centre, so Kieran Pender, who's a senior lawyer there, told The Guardian that um, the, pow the powers in the bill are unprecedented and extraordinarily intrusive and they should have been narrowed to what is strictly necessary and subject to robust safeguards. You can read more about that on their website, the Human Rights Legal Centre. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of great commentary on um, Digital Rights Watch, I would say, which I'm involved in, you know, full, full disclosure. Um, but I'm sure that there'll be something on um, the Electronic Frontiers Australia uh, site as well soon. You know, there's plenty of organisations trying to safeguard people's privacy and make sure that there's really good regulatory oversight on these sorts of um, sorts of 
capabilities. Mm, and here's hoping that the the opinions and uh, the the work that you, uh, Digital Rights Watch uh, and the others are doing um, will actually, you know, go some way to allaying our fears about this this because it is it is a pretty far reaching bill. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have more conversations about that in future because it's a little too in-depth to cover just in our brief news session. Absolutely. What else has been going on, guys? Um, so from one uh, terrible, terrifying surveillance state to another, uh, Facebook uh, and the, their idea of becoming a metaverse company or being predominantly known as a metaverse company. Um, and their, their recently sort of uh, shared project called Horizon Workrooms um, and if you were designing a metaverse, surely the first thing you would think of would be, let's have a conference room where nobody, everyone's a cartoon and nobody has any legs. <laughs> <laughs> That's just my life. What are you talking so this about? Is basically, this is basically Facebook's idea of how we're going to collaborate in the future through VR, through, through Oculus Quest, um, kind of mixing, you know, like our kind of our 2D Zoom experiences, which I'm sure we're all very excited to have more of with kind wow. of Game Pass avatars. Um, and things like that. Um, I love so, how you're perfectly capturing the absolute <laughs> fatigue we have with web conferencing at the moment. Oh, man. So imagine, imagine that stretched out into you wearing a VR headset oh. as well, and that's what uh, Mr. Zuckerberg is looking for for oh. all of us. So, yeah, if you're interested, check out um, the, the Oculus Horizons workrooms and, and see how you feel about being a cartoon. Oh, Some of the best commentary I saw on this um, development was someone saying, how do you take notes in this world? You know, do you not take notes or do you then have a a fake version of a note-taking thing that goes into your real note-taking thing that, you know, like oh. it just, oh, it was just like multi-layers of. <laughs> meta upon yeah. meta upon meta yeah, within the metaverse. Really, was, That's but I think they nailed it. Let's do it. Let's do it. That's amazing. Absolutely. Triple R. Hi, you're listening to Bite Into It. I'm Laura Summers, and I'm about to chat with someone on the other side of the world about the challenges of responsible and safe technology design. Eva Pensi-Moog is the principal designer at software consultancy 8th Light and founder of the Inclusive Safety Project. She's also the author of the recently released book, Design for Safety, published by A Book Apart, and she's joining us to discuss it. Welcome, Eva. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so tell us, just to start, tell us a bit about your journey. Like what led you to write write this book, Design for Safety, or what sort of kicked you off on the process? Like a long time ago, almost 10 years now, um, I became a rape crisis counselor, which meant that I went into emergency rooms and helped people who were there seeking services after a sexual assault. I learned a lot about domestic violence uh, through that training. And then I ended up actually doing domestic violence education for the nonprofit I worked at. Um, so I got like really deep into this topic and then I continued doing that education um, for uh, many years. And then I sort of moved out of nonprofit and into tech and started seeing all these ways that technology is facilitating the domestic violence or sort of like is the domestic violence and um, looked around for a group that was working on it and I couldn't really find anyone. Um, so I started my conference talk, which is how I met you at that conference. Um, and that's that's kind of it. And then that led into the book. Um, yeah, you mentioned in the book that there's uh, a lot of instances. In fact, I think there was an, a terrifying stat from one of the um, crisis centers that was saying that people escaping intimate partner violence and domestic violence 
um, that something like 99.7% of them were experiencing technological coercive control or the technology was in some way um, enabling this this controlling behavior or this abusive behavior, um, which is just so high. Is that correct? I think I got that right. Or maybe I'm maybe I'm um, fudging the stats. I'll try and find the, the spot where it was in the book. Yeah, sorry. Um, I don't remember that specifically. There, there was the one about ninety nine percent have experienced financial control. Um, yeah, that could be it. I might be conflating stats. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, unfortunately, the research is like still kind of behind on this stuff. Um, so I don't think we have a statistic quite like that, but we do know that it's like, I, f- I want to say it's like like between 80 and 90% of people who um, are, you know, entering a shelter had um, something identified to a caseworker that there was some some form of surveillance or stalking that was technology facilitated going on. So definitely yeah. a real thing. That's the stat I'm looking at here. NPR found that 85% of shelters they surveyed were helping survivors whose abusers were monitoring their activity and location through technology. Um, yes. So, yeah. so that's, yeah, that's, that's also a, a very, like, honestly, a shockingly high number. Um, yeah. I think that it's easy for technologists to think of these as like sort of edge cases or vanishingly small cases. Um, and my impression um, is that, the data is just not supporting that. Yeah, that's that's such an important point and something that I feel like is really important to kind of just keep talking about until people internalize it because it is something that people just think like, oh, this isn't that big of a deal or like, yeah, we definitely want to support people, but you know how many people are really going through this that we have to worry about? And it's like, actually, it's a lot of people, um, you know, in the States, at least it's one in three women, one in four men who go through this at some point in their lives. And I, I know I did the statistics for Australia when I was there. Um, but I believe it was some, something pretty similar. Um, these numbers like don't vary that much throughout the world. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, could be up to a third of your user population, if not more, depending on the sort of like specific group that you're working with. Um, so definitely not an edge case, but people, I think Mm -hmm. genuinely just don't know I a lot of people I I don't think that they're necessarily trying to look away from that it's just that they truly have no idea until someone tells them yeah that that leads in nicely to another question I had which is um you you talk a lot about like these harmful assumptions that we bring into the design process and those assumptions are things like you know people are going to act in good faith or people and couples sharing a technology are you know like have equal power and are looking after each other and are kind of being good to each other. Um, and I think that's, that's a, an interesting question. I think like this challenge, um, it sort of brought to mind for me this, this question of like, you know, the impossibility of knowing that we're making assumptions we don't know we're making or like, you know, like not knowing what we don't know. And like that kind of, um, you know, the, the sort of like painfulness of that for people, especially people who tend to think of themselves as smart and in control and, you know, technologists tend to be like, you know, savvy maker people who want to build stuff and make it cool. So, um, yeah. How do you, how do you think about that challenge of not knowing what you don't know, or like not knowing what kinds of like frames or biases you bring into the process? Um, when you, when you do start to think about a new feature or a new technology. Wow. That's a really good question. Um, yeah, that's really hard. Cause I mean, even, as I was 
as I've been like doing this work over the years and writing this book, like I still come across things that I, you know, haven't thought about, or I realize that I've actually been making an assumption. So I feel like it's, you know, unfortunately, there's not a quick answer, at least in my opinion, I think it's honestly kind of a lifelong thing that you have to struggle with and work towards. And I think, like, just acknowledging the fact that you're never going to get there, you know, kind of like, men trying to be feminist or white people trying to be anti-racist like there is no arrival point it's a lifelong journey that you're going to be on and just like accepting that and then being like okay every situation I'm going to go into I'm probably going to be making an assumption and I need to really be like looking for looking for what those are and trying to trying to figure it out and continuing to learn new things and read new things and whatever the next thing is like embracing that instead of fighting it which is a lot easier but yeah I guess that's my thought. Mm, yeah, no, it is. It's it's sort of an unanswerable question, um, and I, I do appreciate the the idea of this sort of move towards better while knowing it's it's never going to be over. Um, and I, I think there's a nice metaphor um, I've been thinking about in this space, which is it's like sort of comparing design safety or responsible tech design to like. Um, DevOps or security ops where you're thinking like, you know, it's never going to be perfect. Like you're never going to hit a hundred percent uptime. You're never going to have no bugs or no hackers, right? Like it's always going to be, there's always going to be something happening, but it doesn't mean that you can't get better. And it doesn't mean you can't progress from the state where you are now. Oh yeah. That, that is a really amazing way to think about it. Cause yeah, like just because we know that, you know, no product can be 100% secure from every single type of attack all the time now and forever. Like that doesn't mean that we don't have security professionals and security teams working at companies. We just have to kind of, people have embraced the fact that, yeah, this isn't going to be an ongoing thing that this team is always going to be working at and they're never going to like arrive and then be done with their job. Like it's the exact same thing. Yeah. Mm. That's really spot on. You just made me think like, I've heard people say before, oh, the world's never going to be perfectly fair. So why should we try? And it's like, what if you move that to security? Like, oh, our systems are never going to be perfectly secure. So why should you bother? It's like, of course, you take that argument. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Mm. Um, You mentioned in the book, this sort of metaphor of adding speed bumps when sort of in response to user behavior, user activity. And I thought that was a, a really interesting metaphor for thinking about how we can um, respond to things in real time and like support people who might be experiencing like abusive use of technology or coercive use of technology. Um, Maybe you could explain that concept a bit more and give us some examples of like how it looks in sort of in application. Yeah. So the speed bump thing. So first of all, and I say this in the book that like, this is sort of like one possible approach that, you know, isn't going to like make all tech safe, um, but is can be used in conjunction with sort of all the other things. Um, But the idea is to like add in, add in opportunities for users to reflect. And this is more coming on the prevention side of trying to get abusers to think through what they're doing, which is extremely imperfect, because I think, you know, the whole, the sort of core of abuse is the choice to abuse knowing full well, the impact um, but there what there have been you know experiments and things and there's actually like a teenager here in Illinois where I live um, who kind of proved this out in an experiment with her peers on Facebook where if they used if they 
used certain words that sort of indicated bullying or harassment in a message to each other. They got shown a message that asked them to reflect and said, this might, this looks like it might have to do with bullying. Like, are you sure you want to post it? And then some, I think it was like 90% of something, like a huge number of the people ended up saying like, yeah, no, I actually don't want to post this. I'm not going to do it. Um, And it's sort of like, you know, a really smart teenager did this. um, Like, this is totally a thing that's possible. Like, using the keywords, you know, presenting a message. Um, And I do think it would help with a lot of things, especially, um, you know, all abusers are different and this is like getting into really complicated territory. But I do think that something like this could help in some situations with certain Mm -hmm. people help people reflect and then, and not abuse. And it's, it's certainly not, um, not some type of silver bullet, but is one thing that we could be doing more of. But I guess maybe the appealing thing of an idea like this is that it's something that you could identify, you know, activities or changes in settings or things kind of like happening rapidly and respond in real time. And, you know, one of the sort of big challenges and constraints of this space is having enough um, human human resources, literally people to respond to people experiencing abuse or harm and to give them help. Um, so if there's something that we can bake into the system to try and reduce that, or at least add a little bit of friction. Like, I don't, I don't hate that. I think it's, you know, you're right. It's not perfect. It's not going to be a silver bullet, but at, at a minimum, you're going to like slow people down and, you know, where people might just be like keyboard warrior, you can be like, ah, I'm angry. Like it might help them take a breath and, ask themselves, this is really like what they want to do on the internet. Is this really how they want to behave? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm cognizant of time. So I'm going to, I'm going to just wrap up with one last question, which is um, I know a lot of designers and and product people in general find this space um, really overwhelming and it's, there's so much to do and so much to learn, but you've offered this really lovely five-step process, um, just your design methodology to follow to help people do a, a relatively like thorough approach to designing for safety and, and sort of increasing the safety and the confidence in the safety of your product design choices. Um, could you maybe walk us through those five steps at a high level and tell us like how you see them being picked up by teams? Yeah, for sure. So um, it's I named it the process for inclusive safety. And um, as you said, there are five steps and it's really meant to be used um, sort of as makes sense for your team and your products. Like you might not use all the steps, you might do them at like really different times, but, um, and you know, this is a whole chapter in the book, but I will try to summarize as briefly as possible. Um, The first step is to do research, which is pretty self-explanatory, but doing, doing research in terms of um, existing, you know, articles or literature studies out there that have to do with, uh, the type of abuse that you think might be an issue. So there might be some obvious things, you know, online harassment, if there's a chat feature, um, you know, people using it for gaslighting or harassment, if you're working on an IOT device. Um, So doing that and then making um, archetypes, which are kind of like personas. Um, So making an abuser archetype and a survivor archetype. And it's essentially just defining sort of the rough overview of the space as well as each of their goals. So, you know, Harry wants to find his ex-girlfriend using any means possible. And Sarah wants to stay hidden from her ex-boyfriend who is abusive and who she knows is trying to stalk her. Um, The next step after that is to brainstorm novel forms of abuse that are um, 
possible with your product um, because you know just there might not be things that have been reported on yet there's going to be brand new things all the time so taking some time to go through that process and i kind of spell out like exactly how to do this um but that's it in a nutshell is to brainstorm novel abuse solution or novel abuse issues. Um, and then to go through the last two steps, which is like a cycle of um, solutioning and then testing out those solutions, which is going to be pretty familiar to any, any designer um, you do, you know, you make your wireframes and your prototype, and then you test them out for usability, basically the same thing. So um, is there something that in your product that is going to allow Harry to find Sarah, even if she puts, on like all of the privacy features. Like she's made everything. She's turned off her location to non-followers, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a way that you as you know the tester can actually figure out where she is? Um, and if that's the case, you know, then you kind of know that you need to go back and reformat your solutions. And um, and that was in the example, in the book, I give the example of Strava, which was enabling stalking in a kind of really sneaky, like roundabout way, but it was absolutely happening. So I think this, um, this process would have helped that team uncover this situation before they got bad press about it. Um, so yeah, that's the solution or that's the, that's the process. Um, and I also have, um, time like hours in the book, um, and sort of like, you know, so you can understand how long is this going to take? Uh, it's not that long. And then also things like how to talk to reluctant stakeholders, people who don't think this is worth spending time and money on things like that. Yeah, great. It's it's often the challenge, right? It's building the business case or getting people to like say yes to adding an extra 20 hours to the project sort of right. Um, yeah, exactly. So if people want to check out this book, where would they go? Um, they can go to abookapart.com and they'll find it just there on the products page. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, thank you, Eva Pensy-Moog. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Laura. This was super fun. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Yeah, some interesting ideas there. Um, obviously, uh, having I suppose it's 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 an issue that has been bubbling away for a long time. This this aspect of um, I suppose uh, abuse with regards to techno using technology in this way. Um, yeah, and I love anyone who takes that real human rights lens and immediately goes, okay, who are the most vulnerable people in any society or any group of users, let's say, and then starts to work backwards from there? What might the unintended consequences of our design therefore be? And it's such a useful framework and it's also it's such a useful one to, for just testing who has power in a given situation. And that it's it's so common for us to start from a position of let's think about our most empowered users and then, you know, because we're thinking about how do we help them more? How do we get them to do the most things that they could possibly do with this tool instead of sometimes going, all right, we also need to think about people at the other end of that spectrum. Mm. What a great discussion. Gosh, Laura is great at getting to the detail in those conversations really fast, isn't she? Absolutely. She really is. It's, it's interesting how I, I suppose... It, that what you just said there, Vanessa, kind of takes me back to that old school like Edward de Bono thinking hat thing, where oh, where, yes. where where you actually go into it looking at all, all the positive negatives, possible negatives there could be in, in terms of. Well, yes, yeah. you know, did you have enough user personas when you were developing this product? Mm. Yeah, the the modern take on the de Bono hat might be the user persona. <laughs> That's exactly it. I love it. Uh, Few fedoras in those user personas in this oh. case, maybe. <laughs> <I'm the lady. laughs> 
Did I say that? Oh, God. <laughs> We're becoming a fashion show more and more this week. There's been a slight fashion bent to all of our tech. Oh, there's only so many puffer jackets I can wear. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Just been joined uh, by our next guest, Vanessa. Uh, I believe you're on mute. <laughs> oh, it had to happen. We go out of studio and I lose all of my unmuting skills immediately. Apologies. Um, we would love to welcome Professor Jeannie Patterson into our virtual space. Hello. Hi there. How are you? Good. Great to have you with us. Um, so just to, to welcome our audience into our topic tonight, with about a million monthly active users and 16 million a month from Australia, TikTok is an app success. They have woven together many of the features that make apps addictive, and now they've announced that they will capture unique digital copies of your face and voice. Professor Jeannie Patterson is a law professor and lead of the University of Melbourne's Centre for Artificial Intelligence and Digital Ethics, and as such, we thought was eminently qualified to help us understand the cybersecurity threat to identity and privacy that this change might pose. Jeannie, thanks so much for coming on and helping us unpick this hairy topic. It's a pleasure, and I should add, I'm also a secret TikTok user. Oh, I love it, love it. Which uh, which angle of TikTok really hooked you in to begin with? Uh, well, I'm uh, my children told me that TikToks are particularly successful if you have older parents dancing with <laughs> children badly. <laughs> oh, they are my faves. They are so good. So, have you starred in any TikToks? Oh, I've I have a, I've starred in numerous TikToks. Oh. We have TikTok Monday in my family, except that I'm somewhat conflicted about that now. <laughs> I love this for you, and um, I'm hoping we can get a sneak peek in our free time. <laughs> Maybe. So to kick off this this quite hairy discussion, I love knowing that you're a user and you, you're, you succumb to the same temptations that many of us have with TikTok. It's a very appealing app. To what extent have TikTok established their credentials as a company that might or might not handle user data responsibly? Um, well, it's a little bit hard to say, actually, because the problem about user data, particularly in Australia, is that it's really opaque. Um, at the moment in Australia, we're, um, there is a review of our Privacy Act, which determines the use that can be made of personal data and personal sensitive data. Privacy Act is, date is 1988. Um, so it was never developed to deal with the way in which data can be collected and reused. Um, so in Australia, it's actually really hard to say what TikTok and indeed any of our social media platforms um, are or are not doing um, with information about us. Um, it, it's We just don't really know because our legal requirements, for one thing, are quite, quite weak. And I should add that TikTok has said that it will collect um, biometric data, so that's um, data about people's faces or the geometry of their faces, and also voice data, so... Um, you know, information or data about the particular um, sound of their voice. But they've disclosed that in America, not here. And it's because they were sued in America. <laughs> <as well. laughs> wow. Right. So, so, so is, is, is that sort of indicative, I guess, of a, broad, of a broader theme as to how TikTok treats its data by looking at other jurisdictions? 
Um, I think so. I think now TikTok actually denied in the US that it was doing anything wrong and that it was engaging in the broad collection of biometric data um, that it was accused of. And it, it, but it paid out a settlement um, on on that basis, and then has amended its terms to be quite clear about what it's collecting in the US, mm-hmm. presumably to avoid further lawsuits. Um, and Facebook has had to do the same thing. Um, so I think what we can infer to that from that is that there's probably lots of information that's been collected by those platforms in other places, but it's just that they haven't been prompted to expressly disclose. Yeah. Um, I'm so, I'm curious about how, with all the research you've done in this, how much of this you, do you think is like a deliberate strategy by them versus how much of it is is potentially just them being opportunistic? It's just like, oh, we're getting this data, let's let's figure it out. Well, to be honest, I think that in the case of TikTok, particularly, which is a you know premised on visuals and premised on um, making available sort of funny. <laughs> or um, also indeed um, providing captions to accompany the, the, the visual effects, a lot of it is actually premised on improving the product. So it's we can do more if we capture certain kinds of information. And if you go back to Facebook, Facebook used to have um, and still has, depending on what defaults you choose, um, options to tag people that are in your photos. Now, how do they tag people in your photos? Because they've collected some sort of biometric information about people who are on the internet, not necessarily in Facebook, correlated that to their names so that they can tag people in in your photos. So um, that starts off as an effort to improve usability, to have features that will attract an audience and continue to hold an audience. It's just that the consequences of that, if you think of it in terms of the surveillance state, are incredibly problematic. and I don't need to, well, actually, I will point out, I mean, Clearview AI, which is the facial recognition system that's used in the in the US, that is used by security forces in the US, including to identify people who are at various protests, including the Black Lives Matter protests, arguably. Um, that technology, which is what we call one-to-many technology, um, it's aimed at picking up individuals in a crowd, that technology was developed by Clearview AI gathering lots of faces that were available on the internet and, um, you know, scanning those faces for their, you know, the geometry or the mathematics of the face so that it could be reused to identify individuals on the street at a protest in a subway. Um, so, so the sort of consequences of um, any platform collecting biometric data is that is one is this sort of function creep that it can be used for other functions than entertainment And then on the other hand, there's also the possibility of cyber breaches and that information, that that facial data that is unique to each of that and linked to our name being stolen by somebody who might use it badly. So, Jeannie, that opens the door to the area of biometric data as a type of security for all sorts of things. So, it's been proposed that this is how we'll get into our offices in the future. This is how we'll hand handle, you know, um, identifying medical data or um, how we might deal with our banks. And we've seen it in our lifetime get to a point where people are opening up their phones with their faces and that sort of thing. So, it's coming on at quite a rapid pace. What, therefore, then, are the risks of private companies amassing massive databases of this sort of personally identifying and individual unique data? 
Um, well, you know, on one hand, it makes it easier for us. I'm aware that new cars have facial recognition technology. Oh, um, on the one hand, it's like um, bizarre because I lose my keys all the time. But another <laughs> hand, it's like I'm the key loser as well as the TikTok dancer. <laughs> so, you know, facial recognition in the, in the car would mean that we don't run late as often. But it's also uh, creepy is the only word for it um, because there's more and more and more information out there about individuals' um, unique identifying features um, which are linked to their their actual identities. And you can change your name, you can change your address, you can pretend you've got a different age, but you can't change biometric information. It's inevitably linked to you. Um, and at the moment, we may or may not trust our governments and want our governments to have access to that. We may or may not trust private companies to have access to that. We may, however, one, be scared about criminals taking that information and using it at some point to um, discredit us or blackmail us. Um, and we've seen that happen through deep fakes, um, you know, discrediting public figures. The more biometric data you have about a person, the more authentic the deep fake can be used to discredit them. So that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, I'm quite concerned about the increasing use of facial recognition technology on children because that means our children are growing up constantly surveilled. Now, I probably, well, this says something about me as a parent, but I think it's good for children sometimes to be off radar to be a little bit, to able to be a bit naughty, to experiment. Like, I think it's good for kids to, um, you know, do things that perhaps they're not supposed to do, obviously, if they're not harming anyone else or risking themselves. I mean, um, I know of certain young, young, young boys who used to go and play with sticks in the playground. They would be Jedi Knights, even though their teachers had told them not to. Um, you know, I happen to think being a Jedi Knight in your childhood is probably a really good thing to <laughs> go through the world, you know. and it, but You can't it, grow up with a bit of healthy rebellion. Exactly, exactly. You understand all sorts of things about the world, right, if you understand um, what it is to be a Jedi or whatever. Um, but if children grow up in a, in a scenario where facial recognition is being used in the schoolyard, sure, that means there's less risk of stranger danger in the schoolyard, but it also means kids are constantly being watched. And I think that's something we should think very, very carefully about before accepting. So, Jeannie, with, with that in mind, um, has the horse bolted on, on facial recognition and like giving people the option to opt out and, and I suppose, you know, have control over their what their biometric data is out there in the, in, in the, the, the verse? Well, it's, it's, it has bolded in the sense that most of us probably have already forgotten our biometric facial data. It, there are people who aren't, who don't belong to social media and don't allow their photos to be shared. Um, but even if you yourself don't use social media or don't um, use TikTok, some friend will have put you on social media and, and therefore biometric data is captured. And if they've tagged your face on social media, you've got that link between your face and your name, which is so significant um, in terms of re-identification. So in that sense, the horse is bolted. Information about us is out there. But we, we live in a, a society where we can still say we don't want mass surveillance. We want limits on the degree to which the government, schools, universities, 
um, public institutions should should surveil us, and we don't want surveillance in public spaces. So, so the data is out there, but we still have control about the extent to which it's legitimate to use it. And I think it's really important that we that we think about that question of when it's legitimate to use, and moreover, you know, tell young people and children that it's okay to say no. I don't want this happening in my life. So at the moment. All of these battles are being fought individually on every different app. Apps like TikTok are becoming an important place for personal expression to a whole generation. And I wonder, can users ever be in an, in an informed enough position to trade off their data versus the vast attraction of these apps? Are we ever going to get a good result if that's the point where the decision is being made? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Vanessa. So it shouldn't be left to individuals to make the decision. Um, we do need um, to have um, laws and rules, I think, that put limits on the use that can be made of biometric information. Um, it should be, I mean, TikTok, for example, is widely used by, um, you know, diverse communities, people with disabilities. Um, there's, um, there's an LGB. TQI community on TikTok. Um, there's a lot of lot of great lesbian TikToks that are just fantastic, right? Um, uh, and so on. So TikTok's a great forum for bringing different types of groups together and allowing different kinds of expression. Now, at one point, TikTok was criticised for for not allowing um, TikToks that showed people that they had deemed conventionally unattractive to be shown. But that there was public outcry at that, and I think that now TikTok is, at least to some degree, much more diverse in the type of material you can find. Um, and that's that shows that the public can make a, a social media at least some extent accountable. So that's the first thing, you know, consumer voices, if expressed firmly and loudly enough, can, um, you know, prompt a response in the platform, at least perhaps TikTok. I'm not so convinced about Facebook, to be honest, um, which is much more entrenched. Um, but also, I mean, we just need to keep asking for laws. I mean, California and other Euro uh, American states have laws about the degree to which biometric data can be collected and what can be done with it. Now, we may say they're limited, but at least they're a, a line in the sand, right, mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of just rolling over and going, oh, well. Um, do you, we've talked a bit about kind of the Australian context and a little bit about the US, but what about other sort of regulatory frameworks around the world? Like, is are, are people kind of settling in sync or is it still very much individual territories kind of fighting their own fights? Oh, Paul, that's such a great question. Um, it's, still, it's still sort of individual territories fighting their own fights and trying to find the place to land. So, of course, as most listeners will know, Europe has very strict rules around personal data, in the G, what's called the GDPR, um, strict rules about what can be collected, how it can be collected, what can be done with it. Um, now, there's still debates about how protective that regime is and the, that, that there's still the capacity for um, data to be collected and used in ways that perhaps isn't in the best interest of individuals um, because, of course, individuals want to sign up to social media platforms and they want their faces to be available because they want funny effects. So it's kind of a, a circular um, system there. But nonetheless... Europe does have strict um, data privacy laws. But interestingly, Europe is also proposing really strict AI laws, um, which would prohibit public surveillance, um, simply say that public agencies cannot collect 
biometric data um, from individuals in public spaces, full stop, end of story. Um, so, you know, that the Europe is really flagging that they they don't think surveillance is is desirable and that it should be, the default position should be that the collection of biometric information should be justified rather than individuals should have to opt out. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that's a conversation we're going to see elsewhere through, through the world. Um, but the important thing is that we engage in that debate. Um, you know, I often hear, and it really annoys me, oh, young people don't care about their privacy, so there's nothing we can do there. It's so patronising, <laughs> to be honest. It really is. Jenny, picking up on the, on the European kind of, I suppose, regulatory side of things, with the GDPR, we did see that a lot of the kind of multinationals kind of basically revised their entire worldwide approach as a result of the uh, GDPR because, you know, the EU is such a massive market. Is that some? Does that give you a little bit of hope that perhaps if the EU does kind of, you know, p- put these more stringent, uh, I suppose, safeguards in place, that it will just become a default that the rest of the world falls into being covered by that kind of thing? Yeah, I think, look, the GDPR has been tremendously influential because, as you say, it, it the breadth of that legislation is that anybody that deals with Europe, any company that deals with Europe has to comply with those standards or they can get fined. Um, so you've had a, on one view, you've had a levelling up in, in law that applies to data because of the GDPR. That said, look, the US is a big market. Um, Australia is a small market. Europe is kind of in the middle. Um, so I would I I am the person that reads contract terms. And if you look at the contract terms, because <laughs> I'm a contract professor, that's what I teach. <laughs> um, if you look at the contract terms for, you know, almost any um, for for gaming companies, so um, Steam and Stroke Valve. Um, if you look at um, terms and conditions for mobile phones, if you look at terms and conditions for social media platforms, actually the terms and conditions divide the world into about four different sectors. So Austria, um, sort of the Asia-Pacific, us and Singapore and the region around us or in between those, Europe, um, America, South America gets divided off in a different package and sometimes um, South Africa gets divided off in a different package. So the GDPR has improved standards, but firms, I think, are still dividing up the world according to how good their consumer protection is and how active their regulators are. Jeannie, um, I have a question. Earlier in the show tonight, we were talking about... Um, this latest bill that's been going through the Senate, the Identify and Disrupt Bill. Um, So we've already covered that a bit. In a world where we, well, in a country where we're seeing increasing um, powers of surveillance and, you know, digital interruption in various ways, and we've got that trend going that way, how difficult does it then make it for us to have a public um, rights and responsibilities conversation about protections going the other way, do you think? I think it's really difficult, um, Vanessa, and I think that's a good point. In Australia, when you raise privacy, often people will say, well, I've got nothing to hide, so I don't need those protections because I obey the law, you know, and I've got a clean lifestyle or something. Um, And I think the difference between the US and actually Europe and us is that we don't have a strong rights discourse in Australia. We tend to think about privacy in very instrumental in a very instrumental way, do I have something to hide? 
If I don't, I don't need privacy. But, you know, most philosophers would say that privacy is a precondition to human flourishing and human autonomy. And those are values that are central to liberal democracies. So autonomy is the right to make choices for yourself. And with that comes responsibility, that you're then responsible for your choices to make good and worthwhile choices to live, you know, the best life you can. Privacy is essential to that. So it comes back to my example about the the child. It is good for children to be able to experiment um, within limits, of course, but to be experiment with what they can do, who they can be, how they relate to other people. Privacy actually lets them do that because privacy is the space to experiment, to get it wrong, to reflect on you've got it wrong, and then change or reform your actions. If we're constantly surveilled, we we will ne- we won't we won't feel that we're able to do that. So I think what we need in this space is not to have this very sort of utilitarian discussion about you know pri- we we don't want to have too strong privacy protections because we want the government to be able to catch terrorists. Of, of course, we would like the government to catch terrorists, but we shouldn't give away you know our fundamental selves in pursuit of that. So beautifully said. Um, Always a pleasure talking to you. We've been speaking with Professor Jeannie Patterson. If you enjoyed this conversation, do explore the upcoming events hosted by the University of Melbourne's Centre for Artificial Intelligence and Digital Ethics. They've got a webinar on tomorrow night about technology-facilitated abuse and the need for digital ethics, which ties in very closely to the conversation um, Laura had with Eva Penzi-Moog just um, earlier this evening. Uh, So that's on tomorrow evening. Do check it out at events.unimelb.edu.au. Thanks so much, Professor, for joining us again. Oh, I love I love seeing you all and having these chats. So thank you so much for having me. It's a real me. pleasure. All right. Triple R. Uh, and Vanessa, we've got some stuff. And you're muted again. <laughs> Sorry. Being so, so careful and then failing miserably. Um, we have a tiny bit of weird news of the week. Paul, what's going on with this AirPod news? <laughs> so, uh, uh, an Instagram account called Apple Reports uh, posted a video. Um, if you're the type of person who has uh, in the Mac, let's use the word ecosystem, shall we? <laughs> oh, God, um, do we have to? But okay. You know, a MacBook uh, and some AirPods and your Apple Watch and your iPhone. Um, turns out that MacBook Pros have magnets in them. Um, and uh, people have discovered that you can now store your AirPods if you're prone to losing them because they're so tiny on the magnets. Uh, <laughs> on this- next to the screen on your MacBook. Um, maybe useful for some some people. Uh, might be a bit of a fashion, uh, coming back to, to our fashion theme this evening. It's um, a fashion faux pas, Paul. That's what it is. It's a, it's a crime against fashion. <laughs> but, um, yeah, whether or not it's a good idea, whether or not it will damage the magnets, whether or not you'll forget about it and squash your AirPods, who knows? But um, I think... Yeah, maybe keep them in a little case where they're like keep them in their little house where they're happiest. Yeah, or your or your ears, perhaps. Listen to yeah, some things. Ears. Listen to ears more triple house. <laughs> and Dan, there was a new opportunity for people that popped up this week. There was, yes. Um, creative Victoria have a new creative ventures program, um, which is offering two years of funding to Victorian creative en- entities, uh, so like micro to small creative organisations or businesses or collectives that reflect reflect, excuse me, contemporary ways of working across the creative industries. Um, so that anything it can be uh, screen, digital games, design, fashion. Any, anything that you consider to be creative, uh, get involved. Uh, the applications close on the 16th of December. If you head to creative.vic.gov.au, uh, there'll be links through to there. 
Very nice. Paul. And Paul, that was something on the ABC. Paul. Coming up. Yes. Uh, so this Thursday night, a foreign correspondent on the ABC uh, is screening a show uh, or an episode about South Korean gig economy delivery drivers and riders. Um, so an interesting watch if you're sort of looking at as we talked about earlier, how some of these regulatory frameworks and issues play out, not just in Australia, but in other uh, regions around the world. And very quickly, Melbourne International Games Week is coming up again. It's running from the 2nd to the 10th of October this year. And uh, there's all sorts of local, let's think predominantly local <laughs> games, <laughs> games uh, people going to be involved. Of course, there's plenty of internationals um, conferencing into events these days. So it should be as exciting as always. Um, check it out at gamesweek.melbourne. Just as simple as that. Hey, a big thank you to our guests this evening. Uh, Laura Summers was speaking to Eva Penzi Moog, all about design for safety. And we had favourite guest of the show, Professor Jeannie Patterson from the University of Melbourne. Always great to hear her very intelligent takes on things. Thanks to my co-hosts this evening, Paul Callahan and Dan Salmon. I've been Vanessa Taholka and I will be indeed for many days to come. Fox <laughs> producer Elizabeth McCarthy has our eternal gratitude. We're going a bit loopy in lockdown and we couldn't do it without um, all of her support. Thanks for listening to us out there. Hope you're keeping safe. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.